Hey there, it's Phil Harwood. Just want to take a quick minute before we begin today's podcast episode and talk to you about our live and in-person events. We had three events scheduled for 2021. We've already had two of them. Our Inner Circle, sponsored by VentTrack event, was very well attended and was a great event. And uh, just recently, we had our Forum for Sales event, sponsored by SnowX, sold out. Uh, We had a great event there as well. We have one more event coming up. It's called Grounds in Institutional Management. It's really focused on site um, issues, operations, engineering, equipment, everything having to do with with running a snow event and planning for events. This is going to be September 8th and 9th at Milton Cat in Milford, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So we hope to see you there. Registration is open right now at snowfightersinstitute.com. Welcome to the Snowfighters Institute podcast where we hear directly from some of the most interesting people in the professional snow and ice management industry, to learn about their successes, to hear about the challenges they faced along the way, and to have their perspective on critical issues facing our industry today. I'm your host, Phil Harwood. Before I introduce today's special guest, I'd like to invite you to follow our social media feeds And check out our upcoming events at snowfightersinstitute.com. Well, hey, everybody. It's my pleasure to welcome John Janes from Caterpillar. Uh, Caterpillar is the world's leading manufacturer of construction equipment, including cat-articulated trucks, backhoe loaders, dozers, engines, excavators, generators, motor graders, skid steer loaders, and wheel loaders, and a wonderful supporter of the Snowfighters Institute. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're a busy man, but thank you. And Phil, absolutely. I No matter how difficult my schedule gets, I always have time for snowfighters and snow contractors. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant to make uh, absolute statements of fact about anything, <laughs> but, I, but I think I can go out on a limb here and say that everyone who is on this podcast has heard of Caterpillar before, <laughs> and many are owners of cat machines. Um, but I can also honestly say that not everyone knows John Jane, so we're excited to get to know you a little bit. Obviously, we want to hear about Caterpillar, and we want to hear about the industry as a whole. Um, but we really want to get to know you, and that's that's been one of the cool things about these podcast interviews, and and I've heard so much good feedback from people about just the personal side of things. So so we're going to get into some of that a little bit too. But um, so first of all, just again, thank you for all you do and and for your support of Snowfighters and Grow the Bench and you know everything else. So all the industry stuff that you guys do, phenomenal. The the support that you provide the entire industry. Absolutely. We're, uh, we're, we're really happy to be here. And as you may know, uh, Phil, for the construction equipment manufacturers, the snow contractor industry is one of the leading segments in the business. Um, 
all that snow has to be removed very quickly. And I don't think any country in the world has enough uh, people with shovels to move these quantities. And it doesn't matter whether it's in Sweden or Russia or Scotland, Norway, Canada, the US, Japan, that snow has to be taken up safely in a very small amount of time. Yeah. So um, you're right. And snow is snow. It's the same snow every, no matter where you are in year. the world. <laughs> you know, I, I, I may have told you this before because we've known each other for many years now, but um, one of the funniest um, things I got involved in was an estimating program that I thought was for snow removal, but it turns out it wasn't for snow removal. It was for removing sand after sandstorms. <laughs> really? Yeah, like in Saudi America, Saudi Arabia, you know, and uh, it's hilarious because it it's the exact same thing as a snowstorm. It comes out of nowhere. It's got to be cleaned up right away. It makes a huge mess. And it's it's all the same variables. So it's normally right. snow, but sometimes it's sand. That, that's right. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Same um, equipment, same <laughs> Right, everything else is the same. All, production rates, it's all the same stuff. <laughs> Labor equipment. <laughs> oh, you just don't have any de-icing. That's the only difference. Uh, and it's yeah. 100 degrees. But... Um, so I want to get this out of the way. I, I brief shameless plug here for snow fighters because we have an event coming yeah. up and I'm really excited about it. You know, we have a two day event called grounds and Institu institutional management. Uh, this is focused on operational excellence. It's a, an event that we're holding uh, September 8th and 9th at Milton cat. And I know we've been there. You and I have been there together. Yeah. Beautiful facility and wonderful people there. It's right outside of Boston in the Massachusetts area or even Rhode Island if you fly in there. But um, registration is open right now. We're, we're really excited about this event. We've already had registrations coming in. We're going to cap attendance, so it, it will sell out. So if anyone's interested, uh, go hit uh, snowfightersinstitute.com and get yourself registered. So, yeah, thank you, and hopefully you can make it out there. We'd love to see you. I, uh, I, I tell you what. Phil, I will stop in there for a day, if nothing else, to get an awesome lunch at Milton Cat. They do such a wonderful job. And I'd also like to uh, stick around. Um, Milton Cat, as you know, is one of our oldest dealers in North America. And they do such a wonderful job at taking care of customers. What always amazes me up there at Milton Cat is the size of their parts warehouse. And, you know, through the night, they run uh, supply trucks from cat distribution centers, their distribution centers to get those parts out to uh, drop boxes, out to the other branches, deliver them out to customer sites. And it's I, I forget the number, but I think when I was up there two years ago, they were doing about 98% uh, parts delivery right off the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to talk about the dealers because I think these cat dealers are very unique. You know, most dealers that we're aware of in our industry um, are not really set up the way a cat dealer is. A cat dealer is a monster. I mean, <laughs> 
Milton Cat is 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 I don't know what their revenues are, but they're they're probably as big as you know some small countries in Europe, right? I mean, they're a massive organization. Like, how many states does Milton Cat cover? Uh, from New York all the way up into Maine, so Vermont, New Hampshire, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts. They're uh, they they are big. And what's so interesting about the cat dealer is uh, Caterpillar had their first dealer in 1925, and since 1925, globally, a cat dealer has never gone bankrupt. Additionally, every single cat dealer can trace their lineage back to the person that started that specific dealer. And Milton Cat up there in New England, uh, the CEO is Chris Milton. So it's still a family-run, family-owned business like so many other cat dealers. And we take it tremendous amount of pride and a lot of humility um, because of our dealers. We think they are such a true differentiator in the marketplace. They have these relationships with customers that go back multiple generations. And whether it's a smaller customer who only buys one machine every 10 years, or it's those very large customers that buy 10 machines twice a year, that emphasis and focus on continuity, being part of the community, and the longevity going back multiple generations with these dealers, we think that's just a huge differentiator in the marketplace. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me being out there is just the, the just you can just see and feel tangibly the quality and the excellence and the the process administration. Like there's, you know, everybody talks about you know service and you know equipment uptime and everything, but it's it when it's built in and it's controlled with metrics and it's part of the DNA. Like it's happening because it's set up to happen. Like it's designed to happen. That's a whole different story than we hope to provide good service. No, it's baked in. It's, it's set up that way. That, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just like a, uh, a very progressive contractor that these processes are locked in. They know if they have a crew that's been working from 6 p.m. and it's midnight, they already have locked in bathroom breaks. Here's the uh, refreshments. Here's the meal. Here's your replacement when you get tired. And I, if I was a real marketing guy, I'd have a good phrase for it, but it's like process is the king of profitability. You know, if, if you know what you're going to do when that next thing happens, then you can figure out how to make money and get the work done safely and, and high quality. But without processes, then it's just a um, it's a bit of a fire drill. Yeah. 
So it shows up in the service. It shows up in the manufacturing process. You know, we've had opportunities with peer groups and uh, snow fighters to tour facilities, and you just you see it in the the um, just the reliability. You know, the the attention to detail is just pervasive. And and just last comment about this, but I think it's we could talk all day about <laughs> dealer commitment and service and everything. But I just I was, it was really fascinating when we went through. So this was probably a year, year, or maybe a year and a half ago now. You know, we built out that equipment management course and grow the bench. Yes. And we we filmed that at Milton Cat, and we developed as part of that course an equipment calculator to compare buying, leasing, and renting. And it was really amazing to go through that experience and really do some of those calculations and realize what a difference it makes when you look at lifetime value of of just because of the, not just the name and reputation, but the, when you start factoring in the, um, production of that machine, because it's, it's running versus not running. (laughs) Um, and, and how that happens, like what, how that actually is happening because of how the machines are designed and built and then how they're serviced. It's It's a phenomenal testament to quality and just providing a machine that, somebody in the field can rely on and crank work out, you know, 90% of the time, yeah. or maybe 95%. I don't know what the right, <laughs> I don't know what that number is, but it's a high number, that uptime number. It, it is. It, it all comes back to uptime and safety. And, you know, one of the benefits, if you will, for any manufacturer is the higher the quality of the product, and the more robust it is, the lower the warranty costs. And I'm, I'll go outside of my industry and I'll look at the automotive industry and they publish their warranty costs annually. And you, you can almost drive that warranty cost or associate it over over time to their profitability, to their safety, to their quality. It's symptomatic. That's the word I was looking Mm -hmm. for. That warranty cost is symptomatic of how you design and build your product. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. Good, good foundation to our conversation today. Uh, I do want to talk more business and we will, I want to get into awesome. some, some business topics, but I also, like I said, in the beginning, I just, I really want to, you know, this is the first time we've had you on the the podcast here. So I just, I want to give the, our listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. So um, let's start with just your, your role at Caterpillar. How long have you been with Caterpillar? Tell us what you've been involved in. Have you had different roles over the years? And then what are you working on now with Caterpillar? Great question. So for the past year, I support our teams in Europe and India as we work with dealers and customers and partners to become more focused on that retail customer. So that smaller uh, contractor that Maybe they only buy one machine every seven years. And we're very process oriented and we're deploying 
the same process globally with our dealers so that when a retail or small customer comes in, even though they're only going to come in once every seven years, we want to assure that their experience and their relationship is the same as that larger contractor that's coming in twice a month for um, either new product or by used or rental or parts and service. So for the past year, that's been my focus. And uh, and because of I COVID, you haven't been traveling. <laughs> I haven't been <laughs> So traveling. it's all virtual, right? <laughs> it, it, it's been 100% virtual. Yeah. So which different time zones, different time zones. So I do start my day at 4 a.m. So I can reach the European and the Asian uh, markets before they go to sleep. But uh, it's been a blast. It's been just a lot of fun. Every job I've had at CAT, it's been fun. It really has. I I started as a business analyst at CAT, and what year was I, that? That was I was a contractor for four years from '02 to '06. Then I came on board full time in '06. Okay. So I started as a business analyst, then a trainer. Uh, then I worked in dealer development, and then I was a national account sales rep. Then I was a territory rep down in Florida, and coincidentally, we got a lot of visits from our headquarters in Illinois to Florida in November, December, and January of every year. I don't know why (laughs) anyone would travel from Chicago to Miami in January, but on the the business. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Pure business. (laughs) With her family. Just happened to be like that. And then, um, I worked with one of our partners out of Canada for about three years. And then last year I started working with our Europe and India teams. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I know you've been around the association world for a bunch of years and that's how I got to know you. And so you've been kind of a mainstay there and a lot of people know who you are, uh, but but maybe they don't know everything behind the scenes. And so I, I wanna get into a little bit more uh, just kind of who you are outside of work and stuff. And so let's just stay with the career stuff, the business stuff. What did you do before Caterpillar? Did you work um, Uh, some other places before Caterpillar? Before Caterpillar, I worked for IBM and I was there for eight years. Absolutely wonderful experience. Um, In terms of good old fashioned, hard nosed, how to line out a process and run a business. There's a lot of smart folks at IBM 
And then before that, I was with an accountancy, KPMG, and uh, that additionally, that was a load of fun. Uh, before that, I went to university and quick shout out to a couple schools in the South, North Carolina State University, go Wolfpack mm-hmm. <laughs> and Duke University. So great experience, just wonderful schools, yeah. degrees in engineering and business. That's great. And what about on the personal to- side? Um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Finish I'll, that I'll thought. On. No, finish that thought. Before that, I was in the Marines. And before the Marines, I I left high school after the 11th grade because I knew so much more than those teachers <laughs> in high school. And then uh, uh, I was a busboy for a couple years. So carrying a pack in the Marine Corps was a huge upgrade in my uh, lifestyle from being a busboy. Yeah. Well, you know, that was on my list because I do want to hear about your military experience. Tell us some of the cool places you've been and, and uh, you know, if there are any kind of memorable moments you can share with us. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, we were in Tromso, Norway, uh, just, you know, routine military exercises. But I, I, growing up, I had never left North Carolina, definitely never left the U.S. Um, or the East Coast. And so I found myself, you know, 19 years old, it's two in the morning, and I'm watching the Northern Lights there in Tromso, Norway for over an hour. And I just an absolutely amazing experience. And I was paid to be there. Uh, thank you to the American taxpayer. Right. And a couple of weeks ago, my wife was looking at vacations for next year and she had a cruise line. And I think it was like 10,000 bucks to go see the Northern Lights. <laughs> And I, I said, honey, don't you remember, I, I was getting paid $500 a month back then, and I saw it for free. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's yeah. definitely on the bucket list to see some some good northern lights. We'll get, yeah. we'll get a little little glimpse of something every now, here, now and then here in Michigan, but nothing like that. Um, well, thank you for your service. Um, how many years? I... Um, I had a total of seven active years and then um, over 25 in the National Guard. Yeah, you went back a couple times, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. uh, Yeah, we had a uh, uh, we had a stop in Afghanistan in the early days in the 03. And then uh, one in Iraq around 09. And just wonderful. Met a lot of wonderful people. You were over there for a while, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. But it's a. I think 
you get any group of people with a common purpose and regardless of the situation you're in, but a group of people working together for a common purpose, that common goal, that's in many respects, I think that's what we all strive for Mm -hmm. every day. Like whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a family, you have a family and raising that family, everyone's working together for that common goal. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, the band of brothers. I mean, right. Yeah, so everyone that, wants that. And it's hard to replicate in business. It's hard to get the passion because your life isn't on the line, you know, being in the <laughs> foxhole, but, and it's also hard to focus, right? I mean, that's what's so in the military, you are hyper-focused, you know, exactly what your mission is. Y- yes. Um, yes, that's true. They're very true. And, um, you, you do have to, uh, prioritize what you're thinking about. And as you said, here in daily life, it becomes, um, there's a lot of priorities, right? Mm -hmm. So we have family, we have our charitable, uh, activities we do. We have our business that we have to conduct and balancing those items um, that prioritizing those, it's difficult. And I think the happiest people I've seen are the ones that they, with both arms, they accept all those responsibilities and they give themselves a hundred percent. And it's almost like the more they give, the more they get back. Mm-hmm. Um, so like on Saturdays, I go out to Habitat for Humanity. And um, my last year, two weeks of my vacation, I went and did Habitat for Humanity. But once again, it's that um, it's a group of people that came together and they're all striving for that common goal. And the, what you get out of it, I mean, gosh, my return on positive investment is, must be a thousand or 2000%. And I see this in so many uh, really exceptional people. And, I, you know, let me go to the uh, snow community for a minute. Uh, Jim Horning, uh, uh, Brett Lemke, John Crandall, you know, just I have love for the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So I just mm-hmm. picked three folks from the Northeast. Great guys, yeah. They're, they're all great. They give 100% to their companies, 100% to their families, 100% to their communities. And they always, always have time for someone else. Mm-hmm. And what, what's that phrase? Uh, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. They you, always... you, you just answered one of my questions on the list here because I wanted to hear your thoughts about advice to a young person. And I, I think you just nailed it right there. It, it's, uh, 
I don't, what I've told my children and they're grown and they're well established in their careers. But if, if you give it your all and if you can find someone you can model yourself after, like obviously I modeled myself after my parents, but when I look outside of that, it was my senior drill instructor in Marine Corps boot camp, Michael A. Beeler. Still remember his name. And he always as tough as he was, and he was a tough old bird, but he always had time to help and to give back. And he, he was actually one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Hmm. Military drill instructor. That's wild. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like an oxymoron there. Um, all right. That's, that's great. Um, I want to go rapid fire, personal, personal stuff here. Yes. Family married, <clears throat> married. I know some been of these together. answers, but yeah, go for it. <clears throat> been together since 82, um, three children, um, one works for a software company. One works for a large accountancy, a competitor to the accountancy I used to work for. And one works for a public school as a classroom instructor. She loves it. I mean, absolutely loves it. It's 60, 70 hours a week. I, I, Public school teachers, after having seen my daughter, right? And uh, so she's been doing it for eight years, and they—they're a special—they're a special breed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Last time I was at your place, there were two dogs, but one was getting pretty old. They—they still kicking. Yes. (laughs) So now we have three. Oh, nice. Yeah, they're all. uh, We have a. Zoe, who is 11, she's the older one you met. Rosie is three, and Charlie is one. And I named Charlie for my previous boss last year. So, um, yeah, it's uh, we were empty nesters, but we replaced uh, the bipeds with quadrupeds. Yeah, right. There you go. Well, Rosie and Charlie will be around for many years. That's um, right. I'm always interested in what people, uh, you know, where they get their input as far as what they're reading, who they follow. Any anything there you want to talk about? Yeah, I um, uh, a little eclectic, if you will, or maybe a little economic. I follow uh, three folks pretty consistently. Um, one is John Cochran, who has a blog called The Grumpy Economist, and he's associated, I think he teaches at the University of Chicago, maybe. The other one is Greg Manku, who has a blog, and he's an economist at the Duke of the North, um, Harvard. And then Don Boudreaux, um, 
he's got a great blog and he's with George Mason University and for some reason these economists just have such many times they have such a clear view of the world and they're always willing they are always willing to use the phrase on the other hand so um, mm -hmm. different perspectives very different perspectives um I, i've found that regardless of a business or personal situation that the perspectives some of these thought leaders bring to the discussion i i never would have thought of absolutely never would have thought of well it's um you know, I think in the with with what's going on with the cancel culture and everything happening in our society today, it's refreshing to hear some economists who have open minds and willing to to consider different sides of things. Um, and and what's cool about economists, because I love them as well, is they back it up with data and yes. they have numbers. It's not theor <laughs> theoretical; they actually have numbers, and I like that. <laughs> Phil, you know me and. My love affair with Excel, um, I, I, I'm really, um, really impressed. It, it's one thing to read something by a pundit who just puts opinion out there, but when uh, an economist or anyone backs their argument up with empirical data, and that that really takes it to a whole new level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, let's switch gears. I want to hear about snow industry um, because you haven't always been in the snow industry. So at some point, you got involved in the snow industry. Um, and yes. uh, so I'm just kind of curious. Like, what? Talk to us about your thoughts about the industry. Like, what's unique about the snow industry? What's really what was maybe a big surprise when you got involved in the snow industry? Interested so, to hear about those things. What I think here in the snow industry, everyone is too humble. Everyone. The, the most humble group of people that I've ever met in my life and extremely successful people and the reason I say they're so humble is when I look at the snow industry, <clears throat> what I see is about 400,000 people that are first responders. And they are first responders of the vein of EMT and fire and police. They get out there. And they put it 100% all on the line, 12, 24, 36 hours at a time, depending on the event. They never ask for any glory. They, we never read about them in the newspapers of, 
hey, this guy, first he was running a tractor for eight hours, and then he was sweeping sidewalks for eight hours, and then he was spreading ice for eight hours. We never, ever yeah, you read never about read that. that. Article. You know, I every year I see that Time Magazine Man of the Year, and I'm like, you need to have a snow contractor up there. Absolutely. Because they are the unsung heroes, and they are—they are truly our first responders. I see the same characteristics in a snow contractor that I saw in the military for over thirty years: positive attitudes, work ethics that are absolutely crazy. You know, repeatedly year after year. For decades, they'll go out to an event and do 36, 72 hours straight. And it's of extreme importance because without these contractors, ambulance can't get down the road unless that road is clear. Mm-hmm. Now, we could all sit around and say, well, I could send a helicopter. I can get a four-wheel drive. You know, we have 330 million people in this country, and we have a very, very small select group of people that have dedicated their lives to others. And it doesn't matter how you cut it. When it is two in the morning on a Friday and there's a foot of snow on the ground, that's got to be taken care of so we can Mm -hmm. keep doing business. So I can get my kids to school or I can go to the grocery. We can get the hospitals. They are the unsung heroes, in my view, of the American economy. Hmm. That's a great perspective. And I always appreciate the contractors who really embrace that role and that responsibility and really enjoy it, you know, because they feel like it's a very important, valuable aspect yes. of society. They're, they're, they're bringing something that's really important. I'm always really frustrated by someone who just tolerates snow removal because they feel like they have to do something in the winter or, or they really just hate it and they're really trying not to do it. And like, come on, man, get with the program because – with the right mindset, the right approach, it's a great business. So um, I appreciate your thoughts on that. What are you seeing in terms of, um, in, in maybe this is more of a Caterpillar perspective, but it could be personal perspective as well, but about the industry or maybe the larger economy, um, any trends that you're seeing happening, uh, that type of thing? You know, surprisingly, because it caught me off guard, is not only speaking for 2021, but 22, 23, 24, is the strength of the American economy. And we weathered COVID. And since COVID started, um, I a lot of service industries were very adversely affected. You know, whether it was people choosing not to use a restaurant or whether the government said we couldn't use it. Regardless, 
tremendous number of service industries were adversely affected, but some things still had to happen, right? Mm -hmm. The streets still needed to be clear. And in the summertime, not talking about snow, but that grass still needed to be mowed. Absolutely. Every year it, it keeps going on. And I drove by an auto, uh, uh, a car place yesterday or two days ago. And the lot was, their new car lot is half empty. And it's been empty, about half empty for six or nine months. And here in one of the toughest times, this COVID time, all manufacturers around the world are at 100% capacity. Demand is up for manufactured goods. Demand is up for services. And this is during a tough time mm-hmm. during COVID. So That's a great point. When, when we get through COVID, I I think this economy's once again it's going to take off. And yeah. it's going to maintain its momentum for the next couple of years. There is such a, I don't know if this is the correct phrase, Phil, but a demand for quality. Mm-hmm. Um, in North America, there's good standards of living. And there very much is a difference between that bare minimum and that demand for quality. Mm-hmm. How does and, that translate into, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And so what I, I think a number of people experienced during the past 12 or 16 months was, well, I, I can get just regular whatever anywhere anytime i know that but if i'm going to spend my money mm-hmm. i i want the quality yeah. yeah i think you're right I, and i i share your thoughts about the economy so thank you for that but i was curious um you know just thinking about you know demand covid stuff supply chain issues we read about those all the time in the in the you know in our news sources hearing about these big backlogs, you know, on Long Beach, trying to get the containers off these ships. They sit out there for months. You know, what's going on with supply chain, with Caterpillar stuff? And, you know, how does that translate into equipment availability for this this coming winter? Um, so talk to us a little bit about that, if you can. That That's a great question. And a lot of things, well, let me go back put a little background on it. So if we go back to the latter part of Q1 in the beginning of Q2 in 2020, there were a lot of decisions taken that that had to be taken and they were risk averse decisions, but they had to be taken. And 
whether it was the private sector, whether it was a governmental agency, a non-governmental organization, specific decisions had to be taken. And one of the outcomes of all of that is really since July of 2020, let's call it a year ago, there has been a, a demand from every country in the world, from every country, not just North America, US and Canada, but every country has requested more goods and more services. So we've had the slowdown about 16 months ago, 14 months ago, and then this demand has been increasing. And these supply chains, whether it's a chip manufacturer, whether it's a steel foundry, whether it's uh, mining ore, the demand has been felt in every industry, in every country around the world. And we see that demand increasing over time. So in terms of equipment manufacturing, if you want to be ready for this winter, this upcoming winter, then you need to secure your equipment now. We historically we've always said that, but there's always been some flex in there. Uh, somebody waited till August, till September, till the first week of October. They always knew there was some flex in there. So these days, there's not a lot of flex in any supply chain around the world. And, you know, whether it's the beef supply chain for McDonald's and Burger King, whether it's the chip supply chain for the automotive companies, whether it's the steel, you know, sheet steel, two inches thick supply chain or equipment manufacturers, that flex has dissipated. And one of the symptoms of the reduction in flex in the supply chain is what you just mentioned. We see, um, you know, cargo ships outside the uh, port of LA and they're just stacked up as you and I used to fly into Newark, right? And all the planes would be stacked up because there was no flex left. You know, aeronautically, you know, every gate was full. There was no flex left. So you had to stack the planes till they come in. So these manufacturing supply chains, it's the same thing. The flex is gone and it takes such a large amount of time for either manufactured goods or even uh, to train service people up so that they're just 
snap and pop on that process. Yeah. If you don't have any flex, then it takes even longer to say, get that new plant up and running Mm -hmm. or get that new crew up and running. You know, we, we don't have the flex we used to have, uh, uh, well, I'll just put the new person on the crew with the old guys. And, uh, after six weeks, you know, we don't have that flex anymore. We've got to figure out really different ways to train people up to get equipment where it needs to be, when it needs to be there to design that equipment for the new age. Right. Um, I'll, I'll use an example. Historically, if I was putting an attachment on a skid steer, let's say a hydraulic attachment, a four-in-one bucket or a snow blowing attachment, then back in the day, and I know back in the days only five years ago, but back in the day, many times I'd have a very experienced operator, very comfortable with many different brands of equipment. But we don't have that as much as we used to have. So um, what Caterpillar's done with our hydromechanical tools that go on skid steers, as soon as that operator plugs the electrical connection into the machine, Mm -hmm. then the machine instantly recognizes what it is. Is is it a snowblower? Is it a stump grinder? Hmm. Is it an auger? Wow. And the reason that's, that's cool. so Yeah. And the reason that's so important is once it recognizes, then it can put out a standard uh, or an optimal. Um, here's a hydraulic flow. Here's a hydraulic pressure. It So all of these things, things that we're seeing when we look at the economy holistically, there are specific reasons for um, a bunch of ships stacking up outside the port of LA. And then when our design teams go into design new equipment, design new attachments, a lot of focus these days is very much on that operator. How can we mechanize or digitize some of this knowledge so that when this newer operator gets into the machine, then they can immediately come up to speed and start working. It's a great example of innovation knowing what's happening in the industry, you know, and responding to the needs. Cause you're absolutely right. I mean, there are, there's gonna be people out this winter in machines that they've never run a machine before of that level. And they're going to have to figure it out, you know? Um, and so anything that helps them that shortens up that learning curve is incredibly powerful. It, it is, you know, I, my favorite example Phil, if you and I go back 40 years, if we turn the clock back, then we were pushing snow in a skid steer 
and snow would come up through the pedal openings. And then every time we had to back up, we had to turn around and crank our neck back mm -hmm. 180 degrees to see what was behind us. Well, today, one, the pressure sealed cabs with awesome heating systems and heated seats and backup cameras and backup alarms. So, it, yeah, all this costs a little extra money on the initial purchase, but those savings in terms of taking care of your operator and being in a safe comfortable environment mm -hmm. versus having on um thermals uh yeah the product just jump. goes up the roof yeah through the that's roof, right i should say um you know one of the other things i was thinking about while you're talking just about the you know kind of the economy and the changes and supply demand issues and with equipment needing to get those orders in right away is really this this shifting that's been happening in the industry toward year-round dedicated resources to snow and we've really been focused on this with snow fighters and grow the bench you know really helping contractors be smart about you know seeing their snow business is a very profitable endeavor that shouldn't ever be on the back burner it should really be a priority year-round and those yeah. contractors some of those you just mentioned that are you know that's why they're that's why they're at the status they're at. That's why they're those mm -hmm. names you're you're calling out because they've made those investments. So, you know, I would just anyone listening who is is just in your own mind, if you're just saying to yourselves, eh, I really haven't made that leap yet where I'm you know, I go three or four months where I don't do anything related to snow and I start thinking about snow in July or August or after I go to symposium or whatever the trigger is you know. I would just strongly encourage you to say you really have to think 12 months. There's, there's snow activity that needs to be happening every month of the year. And if you take that approach, you're going to have your contracts ready to go. You're going to have your um, equipment orders in. You're going to have your material orders in because you're going to be able to make all those decisions at the optimal months. And you're never going to yes. be behind the eight ball. And anyone who waits right now when it comes to equipment is may may not get what they need. Um, Absolutely. And if you can't Absolutely. hire people and you're relying on machines and then you can't get the machines, <laughs> now you're really in trouble. Yeah, that that's a sticky wicket right there is uh, no equipment and no people. Yeah. Well, John, we'll definitely do this again, but I want to I want to get people off the let everyone everyone's chomping at the bit to get back to work. So we're gonna we're okay. gonna wrap this up. I want to hear a little bit of sage advice, though, some wisdom from a man who's been around for more than a few de decades. Um, give us some some sage wisdom here, John. I want to hear. You know, you already answered kind of my my one go to question about what advice do you have for a younger person. But I want to hear about a challenge that you had to overcome and how that might be a, a lesson that our listeners could benefit from. You know, something that was, I'll, I'll leave it up to you where you want to take that question. Um, and then we'll wrap it up from there. Okay. Um, the, this may sound facetious, but it's not. And it's the advice 
I've given to everyone I've ever met that's had a that's been in a tough spot or they're in a tough spot and they're like, what do I do? And truly for all of us, job one is all we have to do is survive till midnight. And the reason is that clock starts over and we get another chance tomorrow. So you know, if you, if you're at, having a tough day or you made that big mistake, I invested in X instead of Y that's, that is a hundred percent. Okay. Because what's, I think it's uh 1245 Eastern time right now. So if I were having a bad day and I'm not, I only have uh, 11 hours and 15 minutes before I get a do over. Because at midnight, the clock starts again, and, and we get another chance. I love that. Great so, stuff, John. Awesome. We'll definitely Phil. have you back. Um, want to hear more about Caterpillar. Also want to get some other Caterpillar folks involved in this podcast at some point. So I'll get with Eric, and we'll figure out you know who that is. But I just I really appreciate you taking time out, especially since... Uh, you know, you're, you're involved in things happening around the world right now, you know, which yeah, is cool. It, it's Phil. This was awesome. I will see you at snow fighters. Yes, sir. Milton in September. That'll be in a few short weeks. Looking forward to it, brother. Take care. Appreciate it. Thanks. John. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Snowfighters Institute podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, become a subscriber today so you won't miss any future episodes. And don't forget to check out our upcoming events at snowfightersinstitute.com. Now go forward.